Is spinal cord stimulation covered by insurance? It is for most patients. It also depends on every patient's insurance. Your doctor would decide that you're a candidate for spinal cord stimulation. And once you're ready to move forward with the therapy, then they would um, essentially check your benefits and ask insurance companies if you're eligible for it. You also require a psychology eval. It's mostly an insurance requirement before you do spinal cord stimulation. Does spinal cord stimulation really work? It does. If you pick it for the right patient, it definitely works. Now the question is, who is the right patient? Typically, patients that have had back surgery, that have had multiple injections, that have failed back surgery, still have considerable amount of back pain, leg pain, that affects their daily function, are good candidates for that. So what are the risks and benefits of spinal cord stimulation? The way you would start spinal cord stimulation is first you would decide whether you're a good patient for spinal cord stimulation. And that varies depending on what is going on in your spine, the level of surgery, the risks and benefits. So what is spinal cord stimulation? Or we also refer to it as neuromodulation. Let's say you have pain that comes from your toe or your, your foot or your knee or your back. For you to feel pain, your pain signals and the impulses have to go through your nerves and go all the way up to your brain and until it reaches your brain you don't feel it because the brain is like a computer that processes the signal. You think of the spinal cord as an electric cable let's say for example and in that cable you have like 50 percent of the signal that's more for motor activity to move your muscles, 10 percent for pain, 20 percent for vibration, etc. The concept of spinal cord stimulation is when you have increased pain coming from your foot or the previous surgery or your disc or your nerves, you have these increased pain impulses going through your spinal cord. So instead of it being 20%, it's now 30, 40%. So they found by stimulating the spine, by increasing the vibration sense of the spine, you can overtake those pain impulses. So essentially almost like a, like a gate. That's what they call it, a gate control. Instead of having 30% of vibration sense, now you have 40% of vibration sense that will only let 20% of pain go up, which would be normal. So you're not numb, but the excess pain signals that you've had does not reach your brain, so it's not processed, so you don't feel it. So that's why they call it neuromodulation. You modulate the pain signals going up to your brain. So how long has spinal cord stimulation been around and who typically is a good candidate for receiving the procedure? Well, spinal cord stimulation its earliest forms have been there from like the 70s and the 80s. And over the years, they have evolved and developed. The first companies that started spinal cord stimulation are the big companies like Medtronic. But then there have been other companies like Abbott, also known as St. Jude, Boston Scientific. Nevro, things like that, that over the years they've come up with different modifications. Technology has improved. Every company has its pluses and minuses. It's more important to pick each company based on what the patient's requirements are. Some patients want a smaller battery. Some patients want 
to not feel any of the stimulation. Some patients want to feel the stimulation. Some patients want to have MRIs in the future. It depends on what's important for the patient in the future, and you can kind of tailor the specific company for the patient. Who's a good candidate for spinal cord stimulation? Typically, you would want the most clear-cut candidates or patients who've had back surgery continue to have the same back pain, leg pain. They've tried multiple therapies, physical therapy, injection therapy. They may be on opiates for a long term and it's no longer helpful, or they don't want to try any medications. So those are all good candidates for spinal cord stimulation. There are some other indications, like people that have neuropathy, they may benefit from it as well. But essentially, people that have pain from whatever the cause from the waist below that goes all the way down to the toes because essentially spinal cord stimulation does not treat the cause of the problem which we've tried people have tried to treat in the past with surgery and things of like that all it does is try to modulate the signals that are going up to the brain so irrespective of what the cause is it tries to block the pain impulses going up which is great because most people have already tried to treat those the initial problems with surgery and things like that. How do you know spinal cord stimulation is going to work for you? Everybody's different. Everybody's response is going to be different. It's like taking Tylenol for a headache. You take Tylenol, I take Tylenol. It just works different than different people. Everybody just responds differently to the therapy. That is why they have an initial period known as a trial period, where essentially what we do is almost like a test drive. We basically put the leads in you percutaneously, so without any kind of incision, any kind of cutting or anything, it's just a needle, and you put the lead one lead, maybe two leads, depending on your pathology and what's your pain requirements, and we connect it to an external battery, just, just taped to your skin, and you go home with that for five days. In those five days, you will try to gauge your pain relief compared to what you had before. There are different responses people have. Some people come back and say, this is amazing, do not take this out of my spine. Regardless, in five days, we are going to take it out of your spine, which is a great response. Some people know immediately, the very next day, they are like, this is amazing, I can already tell the difference and there's improvement in my function. Other people, they take the full five days to essentially appreciate the functional limitations that they've been having for all these years. There's a subgroup of people that they're not sure. And to those patients, I always tell them like, okay, that's fine, we've done the trial, we take the leads out, you go home with it, and then in two or three days, you're back to where you were. And that's when they appreciate the contrast of the pain relief that they had. And then there is a subgroup of people where this therapy just doesn't work. And a lot of times that is because A, you have such significant disease in your spine that is not amenable to this therapy, or your expectations are different. If you're expecting 100% relief, which certainly some patients do that well, but the goal of the therapy is to decrease your excess pain and try to improve your function. It's more a functional outcome that we're worried about as opposed to taking away all your pain because that may be something that is unreasonable to achieve because over time, you know, there are changes in your body. So if I were to get spinal cord stimulation, what can I expect during the trial period? And are there any risks and benefits? So the trial, like I said, it's a five-day period. 
Some people extend it to seven days. Some people just keep it for three days. When you're comfortable with saying, hey, this therapy works for me or it doesn't work for me is when we stop. We usually don't extend it more than seven days because of risk of infection. And let's talk about that. Anytime we do a procedure, there are certain risks. As a risk of infection, it's usually very minimal unless you've had an active infection or you're having an active infection. It's usually not the case when, when you come here as long as you're not symptomatic. We do give you antibiotics for five days while you're on the trial, just prophylactically. And the reason why there is that risk is because you have essentially something in your epidural space and something coming to the external world that is taped up. So usually the antibiotics will cover that. It usually is not a problem. Second risk, the risk of bleeding. The risk of bleeding is minimal unless you're on blood thinners. If you are on blood thinners, go talk to your primary doctor or you would have to stop the blood thinners an appropriate amount of time based on the type of blood thinner you are. And then your risk is essentially back to a normal person, which is very low. The risk of nerve injury, nerve damage, this is what everybody's worried about. That risk is also essentially pretty low. Depending on where you enter the spinal cord, typically where we enter the epidural space, there is no spinal cord. So usually at L2, 3, L3, 4, there is no spinal cord there. So essentially, once we enter the epidural space, we can thread the lead up, and that risk is very minimal. The risk of headache, in my opinion, is probably the only risk that I'm really worried about. And that risk happens when you try to enter the epidural space, and because there is a lot of arthritis, previous surgery, scar tissue, things like that, you might make a hole in that sac that has fluid in it and the nerves in it. It's what people get as a spinal headache. So when women have babies and things like that, they get epidurals and they might get a spinal headache. So it's the same concept. During the procedure, if that does happen, typically most providers would then abort the procedure. We would maintain you conservatively with some caffeine and some fluid, then you should be okay. If your headache persists a few days after that, then what we do is a blood patch, which is essentially taking some of your own blood putting it into that epidural space and it clots and closes that hole and your headache goes away instantaneously. So that is a very, very low risk from that. That is only if you get a spinal headache. So it's very low risk from that standpoint. The risk of aggravating your pain for a day or two is also present because you are putting a needle in your back that is already inflamed and things like that. However, most people can differentiate between the pain from the procedure which gets better on its own in a couple of days and the pain that they came in with. Those are typically the biggest risks that you have. The procedure itself is a 10, 20 minute procedure usually. You're basically lying on your belly. They clean your back. It takes a little bit more prep work to keep everything sterile. You'll feel a pinch and a burn. You'll feel a little bit of pressure as we get closer to the epidural space. That's typically the part that is a little bit more uncomfortable. A lot of times we can do these procedures with a little bit of sedation and that sedation can vary. You can get just a little bit of sedation where you're talking to us, but you get some medication for anxiety, medication for pain, and you're comfortable. Or you can get a little bit deeper sedation where you don't feel much of it. So that can vary as well, depending on your level of pain tolerance and your anxiety. Or you can just do it plain with local anesthesia. It's fine. Once we get into the epidural space, that part is usually pretty atraumatic. It usually doesn't hurt once the lead is going in because that space is nice and wide open. It's just the same pain you typically felt when you had injections in the past, very similar. During the procedure, typically, we talk with you if you're awake, and we try to map out 
where you feel the stimulation, which almost feels like a TENS unit. It's not a TENS unit, but almost feels like a TENS unit where you feel some vibration. And we try to map it out to cover every area that you have pain. If you usually have pain in the back of your calf or back on the bottom of your foot, we want to make sure that the stimulation covers that area. So we would move the lead higher or lower based on that. And everybody's body is different and how they respond to stimulation is different. But we want to at least make sure that the therapy covers those areas. And then you go home with it for five days. We tell patients not to do a lot of bending, twisting, lifting until they know that, hey, this therapy, this is great. I feel great now because we're not really securing it. It's just tape that's holding it there. But once they figure out, hey, this works for me, then I usually tell them to push it a little bit more. Do your regular activity. See how this works. Because if it comes out at this point, it's no big deal. At least we know we already know it's going to work for you. And when you come in five days, the pulling of the lead literally takes one to two seconds. It doesn't really hurt. It's just, just pull the lead out and that's it. And there's no scar. There's no cutting. There's just two little needle sticks and that's about it. And then are there any alternative treatments? It depends. It depends on what the problem is. Typically, by the time you get to spinal cord stimulation in somebody that has had back surgery, they've tried pretty much everything. They've tried injections. They've tried the surgery that has not worked. There are some alternative therapies. Some are similar to spinal cord stimulation, which is also called a dorsal root ganglion stimulation, which is a different type of spinal cord stimulation, but it stimulates some of the spinal nerves. It's reserved for a certain group of people. And, well, if that doesn't work, there are other therapies. If your pain is coming from more of a stenosis, more narrowing of your spine, rather than the nerves being pressed and things like that, there are other therapies like vertiflex, which are help open up the spine a little bit, depending on what your pathology is.